Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is Peter. And this is Tom. And you're listening to History Teachers Talking Podcasts. All right, this is Peter Zablocki and Thomas Reska, and welcome back to our podcast. Tommy, this is long overdue, I guess. I feel like we say this a lot. We've talked about it a lot. I think some other people have said, oh, you guys, when are you guys going to do this? I and mean, we just say it was such a long topic. I guess we could have done a one and two, but really we're just kind of like skipping, I guess, to like the third act, right? In yes. This, in a person's yeah, yep. life. So we're looking at really the um, fall of a dictator. In this case, we're looking at the fall of Napoleon, right? who was basically a soldier who made himself the emperor of France, really defined early 19th century Europe through all the Napoleonic Wars, yeah. continental system. He had his ups and downs as a great conqueror, and he basically just like spent his final years in exile on St. Helena, which is what we'll look at somewhat today, just really talk a little bit about him as a person and what he did, but also ultimately we're really just going to focus on how everything came unraveled pretty quickly. Like he lived, you talk about people living a life, Napoleon, he he lived a life. Yeah, we'll do like, a, think of it like a preface to a book. We'll tell you like what made Napoleon Napoleon real quick, and then we'll just jump right into the third act, like you said, right? The downfall of Napoleon. Because if we were to try to do a Napoleon podcast, I mean, we wouldn't be able to do it justice. This, this man really is greater than life, and it would require a multiple part yeah. thing. I mean, if you look at world history textbooks, a big chunk of them are Napoleon, especially if you look at AP Euro textbooks. A lot of impact on the United States also. Yep. Oh yeah, well, I think we might briefly mention that. Yeah. All right, so let's uh, let's like just quickly. I'm going to run through uh, who is Napoleon and you know his kind of quick rise to power. I'm not going to get too specific, and then we'll kind of get into Russia, coldness, and the beginning of the end. Uh, Napoleon was born in Corsica. It was a French-ruled island in the Mediterranean. By the time he was nine years old, he was sent to France for a military career. When the French Revolution starts, he is a 20-year-old lieutenant, like really eager to make a name for himself. During the turmoil of the revolution, uh, he kind of quickly rises in the army, right? In uh, December of 1793, he winds up driving the British forces out of the French port of Toulon. After that, just wins several just amazing victories against the Austrians. He captures most of Northern Italy, forces the Habsburg emperor to make peace. Then to disrupt British trade with India, he invades Egypt in 1798, which doesn't actually go that well, kind of manages to hide the stories of that because by then he's already super popular. And by 1799, This is basically the beginning of Napoleon's time. He dominates France from 1799 to 1815. In 1799, he kind of moves over from being this victorious general for France to a political leader. That particular year, he helps overthrow the weak directory, which ruled France um, during that time. He sets up a three-man governing board known as the Consulate. And then he names himself the first consul. From there, he doesn't really stick around there for too long because by 1800, really asserts his power. He gets Spain to return Louisiana territory to France, which becomes a big deal for America later. By 1802, names himself uh, consul for life. And then shortly thereafter, within like two years, by 1804, 
he assumes the title of Emperor of the French. This was kind of like an interesting thing too when you start reading into this. Big deal. Big, huge deal because he invites the Pope, right, to preside over his coronation in Paris. And during the ceremony, the Pope you know, has the crown and he's about to place the crown over Napoleon's head. And at that point, Napoleon grabs the crown by himself and puts it on his own head. And like by this action, he kind of shows yeah. the world that like no one gave him this throne by himself. Like it's his. Right, he did. Yeah, and that's at Notre Dame Cathedral. I think that happens, right? Yep. Yep. In 1804. Yep. And he does all this. And yeah, he he says it's like it was showing him that he reached a pinnacle of power by his own merit. Like it yep. wasn't the Pope that said, no, now you're the emperor. It's, you know, I did it myself. And it was like shocking too. He didn't even get along with the Pope. At some, right. A lot oh, no, no. This. Yeah, yeah. I know there was a lot of like issues. Well, also because he gets a divorce. That was also like a main reason. That was a that big was, deal back yeah. then. But um, <clears throat> yeah, he, he did not get along with the, with, uh, the Popes <laughs> after this at all. Nope. And uh, and just kind of to sum up, basically, you think of like liberty, equality and fraternity, which were like the big keywords of the French Revolution, uh, are quickly changed under Napoleon to like order, security and efficiency. Like he rules, I want to say it with the iron fist, because that's obviously attributed more to Stalin. However, um, you know, he basically has social and economic reforms. Um he welcomes order. I mean, he creates what is known as the Napoleonic Code, right? Which is like a new code of law. It's about equality of all citizens before the law, uh, religious toleration, um, abolition of feudalism. So he really kind of grows the French empire, which really leads to the beginning of the ultimate end, which was the Napoleonic Wars that began in 1804 until 1812, he basically furthers his reputation on the battlefield as an amazing tactician and an amazing general. In these wars, he winds up battling combined forces of the greatest European powers. Yeah, they and all teamed the longest, up against him. And, yeah. didn't, didn't, and he beat him for the most he part. He beat him. That's the crazy yeah. part, right? They, 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 yeah, they used to beat him. So his grand empire reached its greatest peak and extent by 1812. Um, as a military re- leader, right, he was particularly known for very rapid movements. He made effective use of his large armies. And he basically developed this plan where he always developed a new strategy and a new plan for each battle. So that way the opposing generals could never really anticipate or guess what he would do next. Like every battle, he would sit down and be like, let's plan this one differently. Basically redrew the map of Europe, abolished the Holy Roman Empire, created 38 members of confederation of the Rhine, right, under the French protection. The only major European power that he cannot get is Britain. And And Britain... He plans to. He wants to. He plans to. So go ahead. Yeah. So what does he try to do here? Well, I just know he's a whole bunch of things that he wants to do. He wants to invade Britain, which is something that I don't think was the last time it was successfully done was what, 1066, Mm -hmm. I believe, William the Conqueror. So he tries to do or at least plans to do it. But it's just never it never transpires for a variety yep. of reasons. Basically, because Britain has such a powerful navy. Navy. That's yep. basically what it is. So he, he keeps on doing this. He keeps on trying different ideas to somehow invade Britain. He plans it. He masses thousands of troops and hundreds of thousands of troops. It just never really happens because the British naval superiority always spoils his hopes. On land, he was invincible. His grand grande army. That's what he called it. Yeah. Thanks to their leader's brilliancy and his his you know his um. Is how he executed these strategies, but when it came to seafaring, he just they were just too far behind the British, so they could never be able to cross the English Channel and attack the British. It just couldn't happen. And they actually do go to a kind of like a peace, right? In like 1807, around there, they make yeah. kind of this like tenuous peace. Doesn't last very long, but when they're doing this, it does um, really well for the French economy. And that's also when he puts in the continental system, right? You want to talk yep. a little bit about the continental yeah. system, I guess? Because this yeah. is what's something that I think starts that domino effect that leads to his downfall. 
Oh yeah, it angers a lot of people in Europe that well, angers yeah, everybody. are his constituents. <laughs> yep, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, good point. <laughs> so because That's he awesome. like rules out the invasion, he can't invade. Uh, initially, he gets his butt kicked. His navy gets his butt kicked in 1805 near the coast of Spain. Right. Yes. Basically, the French fleet shows the, that they are inferior to the British fleet. So then the point figures out that he's going to strike at Britain's lifeblood, which is basically it's commerce. Like England is yeah. the because they control the seas, they control the world commerce. So this is a form of economic warfare through this continental system. He closed all European ports to British goods. And then Britain responded with their own blockade of European ports in basically shutting down old ports to keep people or supplies from moving in or out of Europe. This is also when Britain and France start seizing neutral ships that are suspected of trading with either side. This is where America gets involved and starts the other podcast we already did, right? The War of 1812. Mm -hmm. But the continental system fails, and this is the first crack in Napoleon's mighty rule, I guess, because it doesn't bring Britain to its knees, number one. And although British exports decline, the powerful navy still kept the most vital trade routes open, specifically with India and America. But the trade restrictions that were created by this continental system created a scarcity of goods in Europe and set the prices just soaring and intensified. That inflation is going on now. Yeah, yep. that inflation. And it actually weakened France the most economically. Yep. Because Britain yeah. had its own natural resource and really kind of sustained itself. So this is all going on. And he's also waging what becomes known as the Peninsula War against Spain. Right? Yep. Spain and Portugal, he's fighting time. They were both aided by Great Britain. So Great Britain's basically given the supplies and stuff like that and the weapons of war. It's very similar, I guess, where you can say the Western allies are doing now, right? When the war in Ukraine, right? They're given yep. the weapons to help fight the war. And Napoleon sets his sights on conquering um, the Iberian Peninsula. And he actually does it in 1808 and installs his older brother, Joseph, as the king of Spain. And this rubs a lot of people the wrong way, not just in Spain, but also in France. Like he's kind of making a, a, a monarchy, right? Napoleon's, yep. The French had the whole French Revolution to get rid of the monarchy. Now they almost have a new one again in Napoleon. And they're like, this is not really what we want. So Joseph was a king of Spain for a while, a very short period of time, only 1808 to 1813. But this really upsets the Spaniards because they're like, listen, we used to be allies with you. We were allies with you in some of these early wars against the British. And now suddenly, you know, you're attacking us. We don't, they don't appreciate that. And it was really a costly war. Even though they won, they beat Spain. It was really a turning point. There was a moment where a lot of his um, previous allies, they're like, maybe, you know, he's getting too languid. He wants everything. This is when they're really seeing that he's he wants world. Um, and they're just saying, this is not, we have to stop him. So they're kind of like, you know, exploring these back channels, talking with the British, talking with these other countries about, you know, what are they going to do to really get rid of Napoleon because he's, he's dangerous. Yeah, And he kind of sets himself up, which we can talk about. Yeah. Whenever you're ready. <laughs> yeah. Um, just to kind of add a little bit before we move on, the Spanish patriots were so against the French. Uh, I mean, the, the resistance to the French, what they called uh, invaders, really, French invaders, was based off of a campaign of guerrilla warfare. It was basically yes. hit and run raids because they couldn't really face the French. They couldn't face Napoleon's army. So small bands of guerrillas, they would ambush French supply trains, troops. Then they would retreat to the countryside. And these attacks basically kept large numbers of French soldiers tied down in Spain when yeah. just when Napoleon needed them somewhere else. Because while Spain is starting to fight back, you now have other countries that are like, 
wait a second, like people are fighting back against Napoleon. That's when Austria kind of starts starts to flex its muscles, not successfully, yeah. but at least they start. Well, they lose a little bit of fear, I guess, of him. Right? They realize right. There, is, there is a tactic that they can use, those hit and run tactics. I mean, that goes as far back as warfare, right? Like yep. this, you know, a stronger, more larger, more powerful force, you're not going to fight it head on. But if you do those little nips, right, those little bites, like it's a whole analogy to Vietnam used to say, right, the fire ant against the elephant. You know, one of them is yeah. going to do it, but you have like, you know, millions, thousands, those bites are going to eventually take their toll. And that's really what's going on in France. Like you said, they win the war, but they lose a lot of soldiers in the process and that's going to come back and hurt him. And it also yep. it changes people's perception of Napoleon. Yep. So in 18, uh, he won the first battle against Austro-Russian forces uh, in 1805, but now the Austrians in 1809, again, are like, all right, we're going to try what Spain's doing. They, they basically sought revenge but once again napoleon triumphs right he wins but now this is where he gets this is really the beginning of the end uh napoleon decides that the czar alexander the first of russia um, who was once an ally to napoleon is no longer worthy of being a french ally yeah well he's right? not yeah he's not crazy about the continental system he doesn't like yeah. it he wants to trade with the british and then um you know it's basically an arrogant overreach that makes essentially his empire to crumble down very similar to what you see you know, later on when uh, Hitler does the same thing, right? Yep. So he, Napoleon actually says in five years, I shall be the master of the world. There only remains Russia, but I shall crush her. So he always kind of wanted to do this or planned on doing this. And he amassed a massive force of more than 600,000 um, soldiers. And they were well-trained, well-equipped, right? And they marched into Russia in June of 1812 um, to form an alliance. Uh, and they basically they do this because Russia formed an alliance with Britain over the continental system. Yep. So he goes in there and they are doing a um, really – Napoleon's plan is to engage Russia, go and fight Russia and have this big, massive battle, uh, decisive battle. That's his plan. And it happens, but it happens a lot later than Napoleon wanted. And then what's happening is the Russians – I'm sure everyone knows this. The Russians yeah. are doing that scor scorched earth policy. They're not They're not fighting Napoleon one-on-one. They're just retreating, retreating, retreating. And as they do it, they're destroying everything around them. They're destroying their own country. They yeah, don't burning care. crops, villages. Yeah. Anything, anything that's there, slaughtering any animal, destroying, you know, polluting all the wells. And they're doing this on purpose so that Napoleon and his soldiers, they can't forage off the land. They brought supplies with them. But as they move deeper into Russia, those supply lines are getting longer and they're using more supplies. And it's just, it's just something that's not sustainable. Well, that's what it is, right? I mean, he brings yeah. 600,000 soldiers, as you said, Tom, and 50,000 horses number. on top of that. You got to feed the horses. You got to feed the soldiers. And even though he makes it to Moscow by September... Um, it's very short-lived because he realizes very quickly that he's not able to feed or supply his army through the yeah. long Russian winter that's coming. Yeah. Well, right? yeah, because he burn, he burns, he wins that decisive battle. I forget what the battle was yep. called, but he he wins this decisive battle, but he loses like forty thousand men in the battle. And, yep. he's, and he talks about later on in his in his books or memoirs, letters that he says, you know, I prove that I'm invincible on the battlefield. No, that I prove that I can win in the battlefield, but the Russians prove they're invincible. That you can't beat Russia in Russia. It's just, yep. it's just something that can't happen. They burn down. He burns down Moscow, and he thought that would end the war. And the Russians are just like, all right, well, we're still fighting. And yeah, he's yeah. Like, this, 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 this is not going to work. And he realizes it's not going to work, particularly when the when the winter starts to come. So he comes in with six thousand. By November, he has four hundred thousand, and then he winds up. I think only one hundred fifty thousand ever make it back because most yeah. of them wind up freezing to death or start or starve in the retreat back to France. He gets out yeah. a little uh, way before that, obviously. He sneaks yeah, out. you have a it's a thousand mile retreat from Moscow, right? Turns into they said a desperate 
battle for survival. And the Russian winter took its toll. No, no food, and so many people left that even that about a hundred thousand survived out of the six hundred. Historians calculate that by the time that you add the deserters to it and all that stuff, only about twenty thousand soldiers of the Grand Army actually returned back to France. Which is crazy, you know. He goes in with six hundred thousand and comes yeah. back with anywhere between twenty to a hundred thousand tops. And this basically shows the world that Napoleon is not invincible. And what it does is it force it creates the Treaty of Chaumont, right, in um, yeah. eighteen fourteen between Austria, Russia, Prussia, and Great Britain. And they say for the next twenty years, we are going to be in this alliance. So it's a twenty-year alliance. And the whole point of this alliance is that. Whenever one of us engages Napoleon, we're all engaging Napoleon. Like they, they're not stopping until Napoleon is overthrown. That's what it says. And they're also not going to negotiate any separate pieces with Napoleon. It's going to be yeah. all of the, all or nothing. So all these Austria, Russia, Prussia, and Great Britain, which are basically these massive land powers, right, in Europe. And they're all saying, no, we're all fighting together. And these, they're all against um, you know, Napoleon. And that's basically what they do. And they actually arrive eventually in, in Paris, right, on March 30th. March 30th, yep. The issue here is because by, by March 30th, first of all, he had not yet rebuilt his army. No. So that's step one. He had an issue rebuilding his army because he lost so many men fighting in Russia. And while these guys, this this grand alliance of Austria, Russia, Prussia, and Great Britain, marches on to Paris in March, Napoleon's actually not in Paris. He takes his army and their entire rear guard. And the idea is that he's going to attack these invaders from the rear, um, like surprise them from the rear. But before he actually has a chance to attack them from the rear and have any success at doing so, his own government in turns Paris against turns against him. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Well, basically, he he's planning this big attack, like you said. But then there's a as uh, the president of the uh, provisional government, a man by the name of Talleyrand. Mm -hmm. He proclaimed that the deposition of the emperor and without the consoling the French people. So he said that, you know, the emperor is done. He just said he's, he's done. And he began to negotiate with um, Louis XVIII, the brother of the executed Louis the Louis the 16th. 16th. Yeah. And, yeah. So, and he's basically um, saying, all right, we're going to put you back. We're going to restore the, restore um, the monarchy almost back to France. Right. And by the, by the time Napoleon reaches where he wanted to fight and have this battle, he heard that Paris had already capitulated, was already gave up. So um, he basically, you know, he realized that the first, that resistance was basically useless at this point. So he advocated on April 6th. He said, fine, I'm done. And you have the Treaty of um, Fontainebleau, right? Fontainebleau. Mm -hmm. And the Allies granted him the island of Elba as his sovereign principality, okay? He's going to get an in income of 2 million fran francs to be provided by France and a guard of 400 volunteers. And he can also retain the title of emperor, but he's not going to be in France. He's going to be the emperor of Elba, right? This is your island. And he agrees to it because he has no real choice. He actually tries to kill himself. Yeah, with a he pill. Actually, he takes a pill. The pill that he took, but the problem was the pill was um, from the uh, Russian campaign and it was kind of exposed to the element, elements, and he gets sick, but it doesn't it doesn't kill him? And um, so he gets his he gets his journey, and he arrives on Elba on uh, May fourth, but he doesn't stay there very long. Um, and they're all the, a lot of like, particularly Britain is like, we need to just kill him. Like they don't want him alive, but yeah. the other the uh, he's still kind of like a very respected figure in Europe, and they know if they just kill him, it might you know cause like a lot more resentment and stuff in France. Yeah, you want to make that, a martyr? You don't want to make a martyr. Yeah. You know, that's and he did it, and he did surrender. Like he could have actually raised a military and continued the fight. So he, he, so he, they were like, all right, we'll 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 let him there. And he said, you know. I want from now on to live like a justice of the peace. That's what he declared on his whole island. 
he really couldn't resign himself. He was only 45 years old when this happened. And he was not really just going to let that happen, as, as yep. we know. I mean, this was an embarrassment because they're like, yeah, you could he took still, it as an gonna, embarrassment. Yes, yeah, that's like you are still the emperor. You're just an emperor of this little island of Elba. Like, this was a diss to him because by leaving him in power of this little insignificant island, it's almost like, look how far you've fallen, right? It's, it, was, it was mockery more than anything yeah, well, else. Yeah, well, another thing he was, the other thing that you have to understand too is he was left there without his wife and his son. Okay, his so wife dies he, shortly shortly thereafter. Well, that was uh, well, that was his first wife. Josephine passes away. He finds yep. that out, I think, on Elba. No, he's on, he's on Elba. Yeah, a few months into Elba. Yeah, yeah, and he's but he's but he's um younger wife and his son Napoleon II. He you know, he doesn't see them. He actually never sees them again. But a lot of the things that he was promised, like um, his income that he was supposed to have, that never showed up. Like so, his money. Yep. Plus, I think his wife starts cheating on him. I think he finds well, yeah, well, out his wife. Well, they were both they were both kind of cheating on each other too. That's kind of what yeah. happened. But yeah, because he was um, cheating on people also. There was also a the um, individuals in France, and he finds out of this through backdoor channels that they want to basically return the power. That there's a, lot, yep. a huge movement of people who are loyal to him in France. That the French people actually, you know, he feels that they want him to come back. So he's plotting a return, and he actually does sneak out. And um, lands in France on March 1st, 1815, with a guard of several hundred soldiers, and he heads right to Paris. And as he's doing, he's gathering support along the way. And when he reaches um, the capital on March 20th, Louis XVIII already fled. He left. I think he yeah, flees like, to oh, Belgium. Yeah. He, he's, he's, he, no one really liked him. They didn't want him back. So Napoleon's already there with an army behind him. He took power immediately. And that began his second rule. It doesn't last long. Well, it's known as a 100-day rule. But it's a comeback. Like he comes back, and he, you know, he he was in exile. And a lot of people, when I read that, he might have stayed in exile if one, he was given what he was promised, and he had his he had his wife and child with him. He might have just been more content. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. To hang yeah. out there, but because he didn't get everything he was promised, and all these people are saying, you know, you have to come back, you have to come back. You know, it puts the idea in your head. You're unhappy. You know, you're not. He's you're not seeing your wife and kids. You're not. You're not getting everything else that you were promised in this deal. If they're not keeping their end of the bargain, I'm not keeping my end of the bargain. Let's go. You know. Yep. I also read somewhere that there was rumors he was already hearing that. A lot of diplomats in Vienna were, were deciding his fate, even when he was in Elba. They were like, you know what? It's too close to France. And so they were already thinking of banishing him somewhere distant island in the Atlantic, which is what they eventually do. But do you, he's no, hearing farther. rumors of this, like, I might be moved from here. Like, if I don't do yeah. this now, like, I'm never going to do it. So, yeah. So he yeah. basically sneaks on with, you know, yeah. he sneaks he, on. He didn't want it to get any worse. People. Didn't yeah. want to get any worse. Yeah. But he did have a lot of support, obviously. You're not going to be able to garnish an army. Right away, I think he goes in front of them and says, "Look, I'm here. If you want to shoot your emperor," and yeah. they start saying, "Like Viva la Emperor, Viva la Napoleon," something that you know he follows. They follow him back, and then that's what happens. And then he um, takes over again. The, uh, the British right away are like, "This is we can't be doing this. It can't happen." So they align uh, Britain, France, Austria, and Russia prepare for war against again against Napoleon, who is wasting no time. He already had 120,000 men. I really don't know how he keeps on. He gets his army so quickly. 
Like, well, think about it. I mean, he brought he brought France to such prominence in the world yeah. that there were and people time. people. I mean, he was the hero of France for so many years. So, regardless of the politician aspect, he was good to the middle class. He was good to the peasants. Uh, as far as the French were concerned, Napoleon was the face of France. Right? Brought him to the heights they've never been to. So they see him more than a figure, like a pantheon. You know what I mean? Like he's a symbol. Yeah, he's a symbol of like France's power. He's a, seeing him as like a sense of like pride, basically. Yeah. You know what's really interesting about all this? Like in con, we always study American history whenever we you know we teach it or whatever. But when you look at American history in context of world history, this is a prime example. When you teach the War of eighteen twelve, and we're like, yeah, we're fighting against the British, and you know we're not losing to the British. This is why we're not losing to the British because yeah, literally, <laughs> yeah, literally, right? At the same time as America's like, yeah, we're fighting a war with the British. The British aren't really fighting with us. Like this is the rest of the world is watching this event right here. Not America, not our, you know, idea of a second war for independence, but this and what when a war Waterloo's happening, uh, there's not really a lot of regiments fighting Americans. It's when Waterloo finally happens when napoleon is defeated that's when that's when he really yeah england's that's like true. yeah let's fight america and that's when america's like uh let's talk peace let's talk peace yeah, let's like, figure yeah. something out yeah, even with the louisiana purchase like we, that happens we all know because napoleon wants money so he, can he needs money yeah. for, for those wars and he always intended on taking louisiana back like that's yeah. something too like you know america was another one on his list just like russia was that eventually you know well, he tried to escape to America. They caught him. He actually there was, there was, there, Yeah, there was, there, was, there was something he thought. It was sort of interesting. I wonder how they, uh, how, they were, how they would have treated Napoleon in America. Yeah, like he yeah. almost made it. I mean, he got on a ship. They stopped his ship. He was trying to escape to America. Yeah, so like it becomes a question like what if, right, Napoleon makes it to America? Is he treated as a hero? Is, like what do they do with him? Yeah, what do they do? Grant him asylum or what? Um, yeah, so anyway, basically, like Napoleon's there, and um, he raises this large army, and he, there aren't the French army of the north. He plans on basically going into um, the Netherlands and stuff like that, modern day Belgium, mm-hmm. and he, um, two coalition armies show up to battle him. One is led by the Prussian Prince uh, Blucher, and the other one is the more famous commander, the British Duke of Wellington. Right. Yep. And they meet yep. at the Battle of Waterloo in June eighteenth, um, eighteen fifteen. And Wellington's army withstood repeat attacks by the French, right? The French are attacking and they just, they hold their ground, right? And they drive The British them. do. The British do. The British, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm, so I'm saying, yeah, Wellington's army, but Wellington's army like repeat, um, withstood these attacks that normally worked, right? And they eventually drive them from the field. And then um, while the Russian forces broke the Prussians. Napoleon's- No, the um, Prussians. The, the Prussians, Prussians arrive. I'm sorry. Yeah. And the Prussians arrive and they break Napoleon's right flank. So as he's retreating, as, as he's falling back, playing a counterattack, right? Remember, and everything yeah. Napoleon did was like several steps, right? I'm going to retreat here and do a counterattack here. But then the Prussians show up and then they're able to um, break through his right flank. And then by the time Napoleon returned to Paris and found the legislative and the people that turned against him, he realized that his position was, you know, unattainable. He wasn't going to be able to... Um, keep in power. So think about it. June 18th, he has the Battle of Waterloo. June 22nd, he advocates a throne in favor of his son. Now, before this, he was actually offered a couple deals, if you remember, right? And one of them Mm -hmm. was he actually gets to keep the title of emperor. He can stay in France. That was one of the deals. He can actually still control a lot of the land that he conquered, not everything, but a lot of it. I think up from like the 1790 borders, but he refused and then he winds up losing Waterloo and then that, that deal kind of goes away. Yep. It get, it get, it gets pulled away, and um, so he, he advocates in favor of his son Napoleon II, which never happens. 
Um, yep. He winds up leaving three days later. He settles on the um, uh, right outside of Paris. But then as he's traveling the palace, he's hearing about the coalition forces are sweeping to France. They arrive in Paris on June 29th. So he's like, I need to get out of here. And they, yep. um, when they come in, they restore King Louis XVIII to the French throne. So that guy's been all bounced all over the place. Yeah, right? yeah. This guy's coming all over the place. Now he's back again, which is still crazy when you think about it, because now maybe you have the whole French Revolution, now the French have a king again. But that's yep. something for another Yeah, yeah. And well, that's why, that's why they didn't like Louis XVIII. Like this yeah. wasn't, he didn't stick this, around either. This wasn't a... It wasn't what the people want. Remember, this was yeah. done by the coalition army because they know they can basically control him and he's not going to be, you know, trying to do everything else and get France to be this like world power. Yeah. He just wants to be in the throne. So when Napoleon heard of the Prussian troops had orders to capture him dead or alive, um, he um, flees again. He just uh, tries to escape the United States, like you said, but the British ships are blocking every port. So he actually surrenders to um, Captain Frederick uh, Madelin on July 15th, 1815. So Waterloo takes place on June 18th. By July 15th, he's, he's in British hands. And then that's when they say, all right, now we're not going to keep you somewhere close. We're going to send you to in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, right, St. Helena, um, which is um, about 1,800 miles off the coast of Africa. And they even um, took like every precaution here. They send like a small garrison of soldiers there and an island right nearby too. So they can always watch him if he's yep. trying to escape. And he, uh, he never really can. He winds up having to stay. If you see where he stayed, they're saying that's probably how he got sick and died. It wasn't a long, 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 long house. Right. And basically what he would do, he would wake up in the morning. He would sip a cup of tea or coffee. He would, um, you know, get dressed take, you know, wash himself. And then for a while he started, um, going on these like, um, hikes and stuff on these rides, but then he was always followed by the British officers. So he stopped those. And then basically, but the area was not very well kept. It was very damp. It was very wet. It was rat infested. And he was guarded always by at least 125 centuries during the day and 72 at night. Um, he said it was just like bored. He was just constantly bored. People were allowed to visit him, but as time went on, less and less people came and also less and people were allowed to come and visit him. It yep. just uh, basically drove him crazy. Do you see the, the fact that like some scientists have speculated that it was arsenic, uh, might have been arsenic poisoning that led to his illness because there was a form of arsenic in the wallpaper, like the yeah. glue for the wallpaper in the yeah, Longwood house he was something at. Something by the mines there too, right? Wasn't there? Yep. It was built by the by like a copper mine or something yep. like that. Yep. And the arsenic from that, they think that was where um was slowly killing him. Yep. And even when people showed up to visit him, you had to, you had to, if you wanted to visit him, if someone from the old life wanted to visit him, they had to sign a paper saying that they would, they're going to have to stay on the island, which basically made people not want to visit. You had to sign off. Like if I come visit from France, I'm going to have to stay here forever in exile. Like I'm not doing that. Yeah, that whole thing. I mean, whenever they would even see a boat in distance, 500 guns were manned instantly. Like they were that worried about this guy coming back to power. And there was a lot of talk because the British did not want him alive. That's what you have to understand too. They kind of wanted him dead. But then as a couple of years went on, there was a lot of talk in some of the other countries like, are we really treating this guy properly? Like, is this how we yeah. should be treating him? But he basically was, like you said, he was cut off from the world and he settled to a life really of, he would just read and write and that's really it. Yeah, he read, it's like reading and writing is a good point you bring up, Tom, because they didn't give him much access to French newspapers or French books. This was another way to punish him. So yeah. he actually learned English. While he's there, he is learning English so he could read something. And he winds up getting pretty decent at it. So for the most part, towards the end of his life, he's reading English newspapers and English books because they didn't give him much access to French newspapers. Again, they, they really kind of 
you know, talk about taking a, a, the Napoleon, right? And putting him in a bubble. Yeah, any of the pictures. Like, and obviously, there's no pictures, but like the paintings. Yeah. It's very sad. Like, they show it's always solitude, language. just by it's himself. him with his head down, sitting on rocks, like by yeah. the ocean. And just like, you know, remembering what happened. Remember, at one point, he was conquering most of Europe. He conquered Europe, right? He had yeah. visions of conquering the rest of the world. And now you're on this tiny island surrounded by soldiers. Just like, you know, living in a house infected, infested by rats and damp and wet. And he even complained about it a lot in the beginning, but then he realized they weren't going to change it. It was like nothing he could really do. Yeah. So he, he just kind of settled to this life of routine, like you said. Oh, it's uh, terrible. He played a lot of cards. They said he, he became awesome at solitaire, like no pun intended, but he literally played like solitaire games, like on in cards. Um, so let's let's talk about the beginning of the end, right? I mean, his health gets really bad in February of 1821. So he got to saying, when did he get to the island? It was in 1815. It was 1815. 18, 15, yeah. So he was there. Wow. He was there for like six years before like things yeah. start really. Yeah. So basically what happens is he's really, he, the first two years, things are, you know, he's actually not treated great, but he, saw he gets really good food and stuff like that. And a lot of the people that were there kind of got really, um, I don't know, like they not liked him, but they kind of started to respect him and stuff like that. Um, then in 1817, the end of 1817, he started to have some of um, sign of illness, mostly ulcers and Original autopsy is he died of stomach cancer, but they don't think that was actually the case. The well, it was, it was massive stomach pain, right? That was the thing. He yeah, complained pains, a yeah. lot of not being able to go to the bathroom, um, of being heavily constipated, of having excruciating abdominal pain. And I mean, for the longest time, I think it's still more or less believed that it probably was stomach stomach cancer, right? Isn't that still the belief? Yeah, but probably caused, possibly caused from, again, like all the arsenic oh, yeah, yeah. and everything like that was that was um in that area but they weren't they were never like i guess 100 percent sure but they did do dna they did do testing on him i guess later on that it yeah. was um all like the arsenic but the, the the his physician put the cause of death at stomach cancer so he dies right in um when does he die 18 dies in february 1821 1821 i'm sorry i was yeah and then they make himself. a death mask of him which you could see online death mask. And supposedly he says like you know when he died when he's dying he says like, you know my my friends my son my army and then he his last word supposedly is josephine which was his first wife's name yeah. and then he dies um and then they said that they removed his heart and intestines and put him in separate containers that were placed by his feet inside his coffin and yeah. also, he Something his else, wish yeah. was, his wish was to be buried back in France, but the British were like, "Yeah, that's not going to happen." So they buried him right on the island, um, which eventually wound up moving him over. But at the time, that's where um, that's where they buried him. It wasn't until too, yeah. 1840, right? 1840, um, yeah. the French government obtains permission to move from the British to return his uh, remains to France, and they open and up the coffin and. Yeah. They, because of all the arsenic, because it's a good preservative, they were easily able to just look at his his corpse. Really didn't decompose at all. They said, yeah, because of all the arsenic that he had in his system. So that's twenty years later, yeah, yeah twenty years later, later. Like, it was very yeah. obvious to notice that that was um, that that was Napoleon. It was it was just, it was and they've actually proved that later on. And you know, they gave him a state funeral. Like they, this yeah. wasn't like this was a guy that like you know like Stalin or Hitler or anything like that, and. They, you know, the French people were like, all right, like he, there was a time when Napoleon brought a lot of change that was some positive, some negative, but for the most part, you know, he was known as the hero of France. So, so yeah, so we don't really know what, maybe stomach ulcer, stomach cancer. Well, they, they, they did a lot of studies on his hair and uh, as recently as like 2008, 
and he basically had these huge, huge numbers of arsenic. of arsenic, 100 times normal than average yeah. uh, levels of arsenic. So he had to be, he was definitely exposed to huge levels of this, again, from, but a lot of people were during that time too. It was unintentional poisoning. You know, they were exposed to, like you said, from from the glues and the dyes that they were always exposed to, but he was exposed to even more of it on the island. Some people say that that's that he was actually murdered or poisoned. Um, yeah, that's, that's always been that a, also a, comes a, out. rumor or something like that too, because the British were just so worried about having him alive and worried about him possibly coming back. You know, they don't want, you know, I guess Act 3, Act 4 of Napoleon. Crazy. Didn't want that to happen. So overall, Napoleon, right? Um, impact on France and Europe, uh, undeniable. The Napoleonic Code consolidated many changes of the revolution that came out, right? France of Napoleon was a centralized state. Um, elections were held, expanded through limited suffrage. He wasn't really good or great when it came to women's suffrage. But overall, more citizens had rights and property, um, had better access to education under his regime. On a world stage, the Napoleonic Wars spread the ideas of the French revolutions. So the idea of democracy were spread throughout Europe. Uh, interesting, instead of sparking nationalism towards France, it actually, his takeover of Europe sparked a lot of nationalist feelings across Europe in all the various countries for the sure fact that these countries wanted independence from France. I mean, the abolition of the Holy Roman Empire basically read, led more or less to the creation of Germany, unified Germany later on. That, you know, he played a part in that. Um, even even across the Atlantic, right? Like 1803, his decision to sell the Louisiana Territory, as we mentioned before, doubles the size of the United States. So Napoleon is felt, like his effects of Napoleon's reign are felt for years, decades, centuries to come. No question about it. Yeah, and he has a lot of legacy. Like his, one of you can say, um, his nephew, Louis Napoleon, actually used his um, uncle's fame and like, to actually... Um, Seize power in France. I'm sure you saw that. He, yep, winds yep, up yep. Be, he winds up winning the presidency of the Second Republic with an overwhelming majority in 1848. And then he kind of does a, a coup de grace and winds up making himself emperor in 1852. Doesn't last super long. And after that, you really get a lot of like anti-Napoleon stuff really up until later on in the, the, the early 20th century. A lot of comparisons, um, 20th century dictators with him, you know, judging him with um, Hitler and Stalin. It's kind of like um, Napoleon out of the three, <laughs> I guess, you know, he's in the yeah, best yeah. light out of the three. Yeah, he, he was a bit more tolerant, right? He released Jews from ghettos. He showed respect for human life to a certain degree. You know, he was a general military, but he didn't do like, he wasn't like genocide like you see by those people. And, you know, and we did mention, like we did mention Josephine, his wife. So while Napoleon's mistresses had children by him, Josephine never produced an heir, right? And this was, they say, potentially because of stress, imprisonment, because she was actually imprisoned during the reign of terror, yeah, or, she, or she had an abortion early in her 20s. They say maybe that caused it. So Napoleon and his wife actually chose to divorce in a very cordial manner. Like he was deeply in love with her. And the reason they got divorced is because he was searching for an heir. That's ultimately what it came down to. So even though their marriage was over, loved her for the rest of his life. Um, when he heard of her death while he was in Elba in the first exile, yeah. he locks himself in a room, refuses to come out for days, doesn't eat. Um, and then, as you mentioned before, also, you know, potentially or supposedly his final word on his deathbed in 1821 is also Josephine. But, you know, he winds up eventually marrying uh, Mary Louise. She was like 19. She was German, I think. It was, it was Austria. She was the Archduke, uh, yeah, Duchess of Austria. So there was apparently a lot of children out there 
because of Napoleon. Yeah, it because was, of he only he only recognized one mistress's heir, um, in illegitimate yeah. children, but you know there were definitely probably several others. But basically, yeah. you know, Napoleon he changed history of both France, but also the world too. Like the things that he did, you know, he left an impact and people know that name. And I guess we didn't even talk about, it. he was not as short as everyone said he was. He was actually um, pretty average size for the day, right? He was apparently like a, between anywhere between 5'5 five, five and 5'7. Five, yeah, which is um, like pretty decent, even if he was 5'5. Five, five. It's just like an inch or so below the period's average adult height. It was just more, they said that was more of something that happened after the fall of the, of the second empire in France. People just started, you know, anti-Napoleon literature, anti-Napoleon rhetoric really went in place there and that kind of like changed anything. Actually, uh, Robespierre was even smaller. Robespierre was 5'3". But, you know, That's just saying George George Washington, you know, over six feet. Six saying, foot. You know, yeah, he was. Just saying, you know, you know, the American comes in. Yeah, we, we, we'll, we'll fix it. You know, yeah. <laughs> Unbelievable. They said that actually, go? you know, the fact that he was kind of a small stature, um, I read somewhere that he developed this habit of just dressing down into like as a lower class person and just wandered the street of Paris. Like he would just walk around at night and his security guards were like, don't do this. And he just like wanted to find out what the man on the street wanted to know and what the man on the street thought about him. Um, he would just quiz random people about the emperor. Like, what do you think about the emperor? Because again, it's not like you got TV. People didn't know yeah. what he looked like when he walked around. So craziness. Anyway, I think that pretty much covers our podcast on the fall of napoleon uh as we said earlier we could spend episodes on his entire life but and i'm sure there are podcasts dedicated just to napoleon out there i guess that brings us to the end um as always thank you guys so much for listening to our podcast we greatly appreciate it join us again next week and if you need to find us in between that you could always find us at www.historyteacherstalkingpodcast.com please feel free to email us, you know, ask any questions, comments, reactions, anything we welcome at all. And don't forget to click that subscribe button or like button wherever you do see us. We do greatly appreciate it. So thanks so much, guys. We'll see you next week. Stay safe, everybody. I hope everyone enjoyed our podcast, and if you would like to email us, you can do so at historyteacherspodcast at gmail.com. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II, and people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts.